Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. The Pope and Young Club wants to welcome you as we rally together to ensure our bow hunting opportunities for today and tomorrow. You've come to the podcast that believes in preserving, protecting, and promoting the passion for bow hunting. Join us as we strive to be the voice of today's bow hunter. This is the Pope and Young Podcast. All right, everybody. Welcome to the Pope and Young Podcast. I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Tim Rizuski, and we've got one of Pope and Young's very um well i don't know uh, i guess i can't use that word no never mind we've got one of pope and young's board members actually our second vice president mr scott Backen. scott how are you man pretty good how about you wonderful dude you uh you uh just came up for your second term as second vice president here at pope and young uh the ballots went out last week um, so voting is still taking place. So if you're a member, um, definitely go vote not only for Scott, but also for, uh, our, our president, our vice president, and then the, the board of directors. Um, so Scott, you also, um, are the founder and owner of dialed archery. Uh, so we just kind of want to unpack all of that dialed is a proud corporate partner of Pope and young. Um, so we just kind of want to talk about dialed archery and, and, you know, your vision for Pope and young, what you hope to accomplish as a board member, uh, but before we do all that, give us an introduction to yourself, man. Uh, yeah, I guess, I mean, you kind of did most of the work for me. Um, <laughs> I am, uh, I am coming up on hopefully, uh, you know, second term is, you know, being second VP, uh, second VP, um, in the club, which has been, you know, uh, a, a great experience. And then, uh, I guess, you know, my full-time day-to-day job is, uh, um, I am one of the founders and owners of, uh, dialed archery. So, um, which we're wrapping up our third year in business. Um, but when we started the business, uh, like from day one, I always knew we wanted to be, you know, a supporter of Pope and Young. Um, 
you know, especially with me getting more involved, it just like, I mean, feel like you have to, but it also makes sense too. Right. Yeah. Well, and it just, I mean, it, the values align, the, the visions align. Um, where did the start of dialed archery come from? I mean, I know a lot of people have already heard that, but, uh, first time on the Pope and young show. So what led to the start of dialed archery? where did you come from and what made you want to start a site company? Uh, yeah. So, um, I've grown up, um, I should say been fortunate enough to grow up in the archery industry. So it's all I've done. It's all I've known. Um, so my background has always been, you know, and it, it revolved around archery and bow hunting. And, uh, I had an uncle that, uh, started a, a archery company. So that's how I got into the industry. And then, um, just kind of progressed my career, just taking, you know, different steps. And ultimately, uh, you know, I always knew I wanted to uh, own my own business at some point. And, um, you know, I always say dialed is a, a product of COVID because, you know, those were some, some crazy times. And, with like the state of Wisconsin shutting down, you know, we couldn't do anything. So you just have a bunch of time at home to sit and think about things. And, um, yeah, I was just ready for a new kind of a new direction in life and a new challenge. So, um, dialed was that. Now I don't mean to toot your horn or anything, but dialed kind of took this, took the world by storm. I mean, if you look at a total archery challenge, eight out of 10 bows have a dialed sight on them. So a, how in the world did dial just, I mean, come in so hot, but B what sets your sights apart? Why does everybody want to shoot them? I think the big thing for us was, um, I mean, one, you know, we're kind of, uh, and I actually hate the fact I'm, I'm even saying this, but I mean, we're a product of social media, you know, um, Because we, you know, we launched at, uh, I mean, kind of right in the middle of like rut, but we timed it kind of when all the new bows were launching and stuff. But, um, I mean, it was crazy because we really didn't know what to expect. Like, I mean, we always think we have the best ideas, right? So here we had this crazy idea for this new site concept that we all thought was cool, but nobody had seen it or heard of it, you know, prior to, to launching, but, uh, and that's really a testament to my other two business partners, Taylor and Jordan, because that's what they do is, is social media and marketing. So that was kind of all on those guys, you know, to, to get launched. And, um, we, it was, I mean, we opened up, everything was pre-order. We didn't have any hard like images of our site. It was literally all renders and that like first opening week, um, we literally thought something was wrong with our website. Like we thought we had been hacked or something like that'd be our luck. Like we just spent all this time building this, you know, this company and uh launch day we get hacked, but um, no, it was just, I, I think it's the, uh, you know, we really, it just came down to timing and um, you know, amongst all of our own personal lives, like we were all kind of wanting the same thing. And, but um, you know, at the time, you know, there's been a lot of really good site companies, you know, that have, have been around for a long time. And, um, you know, everybody makes great products, but it was always just kind of like monkey see monkey do. Like there wasn't really a lot of innovation in yeah. the site category. And, um, you know, not that there wasn't anything wrong with that. It was just, you know, 
over years of kind of ex- experiencing our own exp- our own experiences because we're all users um you know when we when we decided that we wanted to create you know kind of a higher end archery company a site wasn't really our first idea we had some other ideas that were on the table but it just always came back to you know if we did a site we could do this if we did a site you know we could do that so it just seemed like like that was the area where um a lot more could be done you know so just kind of looking at like sites as a whole you know what was it that that some of them were missing and um you know it was always kind of that uh, that conversation like if you could build a site what would you make it look like so um yeah it's just kind of just a lot of thinking i guess <laughs> I don't, like just i mean really throwing darts at a at a wall and just seeing what ideas stick any plans to uh to further the line of dialed into rests releases stabilizers anything else i mean i think anything's possible um like i will say you know dialed won't be just like a flash in a pan like we're not going to be just a one product company like we want to build out a, a brand not just a product so um options truly are like i mean we could do anything but uh yeah i mean there's there's some plans for expansion for sure what would be the and, and you know i'm not asking for any spoilers but like if you could say like this is one one area of archery accessories that i think could easily be improved on what would that be boiler alert <laughs> well my, my original answer was i was going to say something just to see Tim's head pop, but, um, um, <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, I think, um, I think we've learned that, um, when consumers are eager and like hungry for something new, they, they will, they will buy like whatever that new, you know, product is. So, and that was one thing we heard all the time, like when the Arxos launched was, you know, we love like, you know, we were really looking for something like this or like, you know, they were shooting what they were currently shooting, not because they necessarily loved it. It was just their best option at the time. Right. So I think for getting into new categories, I mean, I honestly, I, th- I think they're all options, you know, whether it's a rest, a quiver, um, a release, I mean, who knows, but I, I, I think, yeah. I think any, any area where you can try to like promote or pump some new blood into that area, it benefits like everybody, right? Like yeah, competition, capital, competition and capitalism drives innovation. So, um, yeah, I don't, I, I don't know if there's really one that's like that low hanging fruit yet, but all of them are options. Well, and that's what, like exactly what you're talking about. You're seeing companies this year and not that they're, modeling after dialed or stealing from dialed but um you know doing more of the seracoding and and offering these colors to match your riser and and you're like Mm -hmm. okay so it took you seeing dialed to to, it took you seeing dialed do that to think man maybe we should offer that you know what i mean yeah and that's really i mean like seracote's like nothing new i mean it's been in the firearm industry for i mean uh, forever but um, you know, and, and there had been some companies in the past that had dabbled in seracoding, um, you know, accessories, but nothing like what we've done with the customization piece. And, you know, like when we, 
we promote a lot that um, our dialed colors are an exact match to so-and-so's company's, you know, riser color. And when we say that, it's like, I mean, we pride ourselves on being able to match those colors because those are not standard Cerakote colors. Like those are our own recipes. So we took the time to, you know, basically play arts and crafts and figure out what the mixtures are. But um, so that, that was a big thing when, you know, we were building the brand is kind of being like that. It's a whole like buying experience from, you know, you go onto our website, onto our website, you select what, you know, site frame you want. And then you can literally sit there and just spin it around from every angle, play with all the different color options and truly build a site like that is yours, you know, rather than just uh, buying another cookie cutter site off, off a shelf, you know? Um, so it, it, it really, I mean, we just wanted to create a different user experience, but ultimately build like a badass site that, you know, we, we, always say if if we wouldn't use it we're not going to sell it but um you know just really just kind of look at the category of a site and just kind of flip it upside down and try some different things and it all worked yeah i think we see this in a lot of industries or i mean avenues of of hunting and archery Mm -hmm. um you just go back 10 15 years in in both the firearm and the archery industry whether you're going to thank the internet, social media, or whatever, we're seeing innovation in ways, um, reactionary ways, but in ways that uh, products are coming to market faster. And then when you take a piece of that market from company A, they suddenly build something that is similar or or more towards that market share so they can get some of it back. It's competitive. But in the end, I think uh, I think great products are coming out of it. In the archery world, um, and I sort of ask this lightly and, and loosely, but but seriously, is there is there a wall for sites? Is there a wall for bows? Um, I was when I was watching a, a video online that that Elk Shape did. Um, I can't fathom shooting over eighty yards with my eyes and my target target panic and and just my issues. And this guy increased his sight his sight tape. The bottom of his barrel from 108 to 136. Is that just a? Is that just for tack? Is that just for archery challenges? Are are we now really truly seeing 136 yard second shots? Are we are we really needing that extended piece of the tape? Um, and is every other component of archery able to keep up with what you're able to allow them to do? Is the accuracy, is the, are these new spineless arrows, are, are the bows getting that much better that what we thought was a 40-yard, 50-yard maximum range for efficiency and effectiveness, are we seeing that grow? Or, or is this just a demand because there is more, uh, there are more people in the archery world doing not just hunting things? It's actually really funny you say that because I literally was like having like the exact same conversation in my head when I was driving home from the airport tonight. So it's, it's great. It's funny that you bring that up, but cause that is, that's one thing with our sites is we do promote and advertise that we can extend your range because of the angled um, elevation rail. So 
Um, but I mean, in no way do we promote that for hunting. Right. I mean, I think, you know, you made a comment, I think before we jumped on about like everybody's ethics. Right. And, um, I think majority of hunters understand their limitations. Um, so to answer your point, I do think most people that are building like extremely long range tapes, it is for the total archery challenges of the Mount Archery Fest, but to the same point, um, you know, the further we can practice, the more proficient we become at shorter distances. Right. Um, I mean, I know there are some guys that can legitimately kill stuff like 80, 90 to a hundred yards, but that is a single digit percent group, right? That's not everybody. So I don't think you can group kind of everybody into that same category, but at the same time, you know, if I practice at a hundred or a hundred and 120 religiously just for fun. And, you know, I have to make a follow-up shot after my first shot. It's nice to know that I can stretch my range out because at the end of the day, like we want the animal to die as quickly as possible. Right. So, um, but then from an industry standpoint, you know, the more the merrier, right? So if we have to keep innovating and pushing the limits to try to get more people involved with the sport, in the end, that benefits all of us, right? Because yeah. the more users, the, the more money that's into the industry, the, the you know, the more money that can go towards you know nonprofits like Pope and Young. So, but it is a sip, it is a slippery slope. Um, you know, with technology comes its problems. So um I think that's why, you know, there there's it's good to have clubs like Pope and Young around to kind of put some boundaries on some of this, because if you don't put boundaries in place soon enough, then it's a lot harder to reel that back in when it's, you know, blows out of control. So it, it I think it'll be interesting to see um, like where technology does take the archery industry, because I don't think like, I don't think we've seen the ceiling yet because as you know there's advancements in in technology and just in humans you know materials are are getting better and it, it's just now there's becoming all these options to to manufacture products out of so i yeah it's i mean i never thought that we'd really see some of the stuff that we do that we see now but um i think i think tech innovation is just going to continue um and, and like I said, there's there's some good and bad with that. But well, and what when, a lot uh, of people don't get is that shooting at that sort of distance not only helps you refine your skills, but it also helps you refine your equipment. Because mm-hmm. a lot of dudes, like I get that phone call all the time. They're like, dude, how come when I get past 80, I start they start drifting to the left? And I'm like, Well, you need to tune your bow a little better. Mm-hmm. But that's gonna throw it off at 20. No, it's not. You're just fine-tuning 20. Like I guarantee you a micro, you know, a, a one thirty second click is not going to change it at 20, but it's going to make it fly even better at 60, 70, 80, 90, a hundred. Like, and people don't get shooting that distance is where you really find out what's going on with your equipment. Uh, really find out, man, I, you know, sure. I don't see myself drifting left at 20, 30, 40, 50, but once you start getting out there, you know, if I get past a hundred, I'm off the target left. You know what I mean? And so I you can really micro-tune your equipment. Yeah. <laughs> I can't see the target at 100 yards. And there's a, there's a lot more hunters than you, Tim. 
I know. But I'm just I'm just saying, you know, I sit there and think of all these new things that could help me shoot farther or do this better. I kind of like go back to when I went to the Pope and Young Museum the first time. And as soon as Bass Pro gets that built and everybody gets to see this, you go in and I remember when I started archery, it was it was like that bow right there on the wall. And you look at the older ones, you're like, what in the world? How would they shoot those? Yeah. I'm almost to the point where my bow's that one that people are going, how do they shoot that? Because I, I don't change my bow out every year or two. And I like to see bigger jumps, I guess is kind of my point. Um, I don't I don't know that I want the last bow sight ever made, but are we going to ever see, and I'm just throwing it out there, are we ever going to see a 250 tape? Just even if it's for competition or or whatnot, is, is that even... Is that something nobody would have thought of 136 yards? Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I do think like, and I, I mean, never say never, but I don't, I mean, I don't think he would just because trying to, I mean, I know there's guys that can do it now just with, you know, stacking pins or whatever, but um, I don't know. I mean, I, I think at the end of the day, like, I mean, you still think about like how far like innovation as technology has came in our industry, but yet hunting is still really hard. Like the success rate of hunters is still like minimal, right? So I think, I think a lot of people can agree that, you know, the favor is in, is in the animals, you know, like they still have a better chance than we do, but again, I think it just goes back to ethics. Like everybody knows what they're capable of and what they're not capable of. And it's up to them to live within those parameters. So. Well, and what a lot of guys don't get is like ethics change all the time. Like people ask what's an ethical shot distance. Like, well, that's such a stupid question because there's been times where I have a deer at 24 yards, but because of the situation, I don't take a shot. And then the deer is at 43 and I take the shot like mm-hmm. because he's calmed down or the wind has calmed down or uh, other does have cleared out, you know, whatever, whatever the case may be. But, you know, there's times where a deer's at 13 yards and I don't shoot and I wait till he gets to 27 yards before I do shoot. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's Dylan, just such a lot of question. The buck well, at 26 and- yards is a 10 point. And the deer at 86 yards is a forking horn. And that's the one you wanted to shoot the forking horn. Well, I mean, hey, come on now. Well, I think, I think that's actually a really good point is, you know, ethics do change. And I mean, even if you think about like, you know, your ethics when you were 16 compared to your ethics when, you know, you're 30 or, you know, they, they change as your life changes. So, you know, it is, I think just as an industry and as individuals and as clubs, like you just have to remain flexible because I mean, nothing's everything everything changes so you just kind of i guess have to figure some of it out as you go but like i said i think flexibility is the big thing and i think the the biggest thing is is not telling people you know as pope and young we do tell we take the stance on some things this is unethical and this is this is ethical but to an extent we just have to teach people what does ethics even mean you know like you have to define your own ethics because pope and young you know, doesn't say anything past 37 and a half yards is unethical to shoot at. You know, we don't take that stance. We we need to start teaching people uh, more of what 
what causes something to be ethical and what causes something not to be ethical. Um, and I don't want to open up a huge can of worms, but I guess I will. Um, if it comes back to bite me, it comes back to bite me. Tim's already shaking his head. Um, Full send. Full send. Um, but we got asked about the ethics behind a 110 yard shot. Um, somebody shot a deer at 110 yards. And is that ethical or not? Um, we all have our own opinions. In my opinion, no, it's not ethical. However, if that, and I've talked to the guy, if that young man looks at a deer and says, you know what, he's calm, his head's up, his head's the other direction. I've shot the, you know, I shoot 125 yards all the time. I know I can make this shot. He shoots and kills the deer. Is it ethical for me? No. Is it ethical for 99% of Americans? No. But if that guy decided that I can make that shot, then who am I to say you're unethical? You know what I mean? I think that's the key thing for people to, if you haven't been told this or if you're young or whatever, is that there's rules, there's regulations, and there are guidelines. But ethics are, they're really every that are outside of rules, regulations, guidelines. They're the things that help you make decisions on how you're going to proceed in a situation when we're talking about hunting. And yeah, they do change in the heat of the moment. I've had plenty of opportunities to take very poor um, percentage shots at animals that were larger than anything I've ever shot at before. And my fear of wounding that animal and being mad at myself for a year or 10, um, magically as I get older, weighs on me more. And you were talking about with age and with time and and the situation. Um, Yeah, we can all agree on, or should agree on what ethics really are. Where does that come into line with the industry as a whole, promoting bow hunting, promoting archery, but promoting bow hunting and the preservation of it? um, You still have to shoot an arrow with a bow. And at the end of the day, you know, you see it in the firearm industry too. There's a big divide between the traditional off-the-shelf 200-yard hunter who hasn't had any experience or any time in the field in another environment versus the custom gun builders that are shooting long range. Well, we run into that in other sports as well. And where do you, as a bow site maker, where do you, as a board member for a bow hunting nonprofit organization, where do you teach and where do you share um your line does it come out in your product, or does it just come out in your, in your, in your conversation with your network? Um, mine's very personal. Um, I'm very different than a, than a lot of people that I know in Pope and Young or just in the hunting industry. I hunt with a lot of different weapons. I enjoy it, um, but I have found I look back on hunts um, that I've done in the past and. With the equipment I had and the experience I had, I had no business being in there. I it's it's a miracle I didn't mess up significantly. So I think uh one like that last piece that you just said, I mean, I think like it goes back to like the comment I made before. I think you know your ethics change as you know you mature, right? So I think we all had have 
experiences that we look back on and you're like, I mean, you, you, you feel embarrassed and ashamed and like, what was I thinking? I mean, I know I definitely do, but I also know now, like, or since then I'm never doing that again, you know, but, um, you know, as far as we go with like, it, it, and that's really, it's kind of a hard like question and, or like a hard stance to take because, you know, like since I've been involved with Hope and Young, um, you know, I've learned more about the club and what it stands for and stuff, but it's also kind of opened my eyes that, you know, stuff that I didn't really think about or realize, but, you know, so for, from that stance, I think, you know, we do have to kind of put a cap on certain things, right? Because otherwise, like I said before, they're just going to snowball and then it's the wild west when it, when it comes to, you know, what is considered ethical or non-ethical. But from an industry standpoint, I'm very pro, you know, whatever we have to do to keep growing the industry and keep getting people involved. And, you know, it's almost like, you know, the field of dreams, if you build it, they will come and then we'll get them there. And then now it's time, it's start, it's time to kind of start setting precedents and, you know, weeding out the bad ones. And, you know, like you made a comment about, um, you know, how to, how do we share, I think, you know, our, our views on ethics or, or how do we, our views and just ethical hunting. Right. And I think a lot of that, like you, like you see somebody and who they align themselves with. Right. So like us as a company, we support Pope and Young because we support your efforts and, you know, what the club, what the club does. But on a personal level, you know, like if, if nobody knew me, but, you know, they knew like my group of friends, we're, we're friends because we all, we have the same ethics, right? Like, you know, we, we believe in the same stuff. So I think that says a lot, but you know, I think the hard part is like, okay, taking those groups, because it's not, I mean, there's a lot of those groups out there and getting them together, right? And instead of having each individual individual group, because, um, you know, and, and I've been pretty vocal about kind of this, this stance, but at the end of the day, it's, it's us versus them. So us as hunters, us as bow hunters versus them, the people that are trying to take that away from us, you know? the ethical treatment of animals, people. So, you know, I think this comes back around real quick, Dale. And I think this comes back around to why we're all three here in the positions that we're in, because we had an interaction. We met someone from Pope and Young beyond the magazine, beyond the record book. And we wanted to get involved. We wanted to work for a company because we believed in what they're saying, what they're sharing. And um, I think probably a great thing for Scott's product line is that it it has kind of grown together with his tenure at Pope and Young. And he has seen at the board level, at fundraising level, at convention level, at workshop level, what we're about. And um the fact that he's running again tells me he believes in it. So that actually leads me right into the question I wanted to ask. Because, Scott, you said like you came on board and you learned more about Pope and Young. What was your your history with Pope and Young, you know, prior to two years ago when you ran for second VP? 
Uh, yeah. So, um, it's actually like, you know, I grew up in Wisconsin and, um, you know, cut my teeth hunting, you know, North woods of, of Wisconsin and the, the group that like I hung around with and, um, that I, I, I hunted with Pope and young was actually like a curse word. Like, like everybody talked about Pope and young and scoring and, you know, we don't hunt for score, you know, we hunt for, you know, it was either meat or the experience or, you know, and, and you know, yeah, we shot some bucks that you'd look at now and, you know, you just shake your head. But to us, it was always about like the hunt and like the camaraderie, right? Like score didn't matter. Well, then we started learning about, you know, quality deer management and, you know, shooting all these deer just to try to kill a buck, like, you know, and then the next day you're bitching about how you don't see any big deer. So, but yeah, growing up, um, you know, you, you'd hear you know, like your body say like, oh yeah, my dad, you know, he killed a Pope and young deer or whatever. And I would always just be like, so what? Like score doesn't matter, you know, but it really, um, it really wasn't until I attended my first convention. Um, you know, I always thought Pope and young was just a scoring system. And even though that is a big part of the club, I didn't realize there was more to that. And it was the first convention I attended in St. Louis. And I, I did, you know, I met some of the board members at the time and, you know, saw Chuck Adams, uh, give his speech on, um, you know, uh, itchy and, you know, like, I didn't even know who Saxton Pope and Art Young was. I just knew it was Pope and Young, you know? So it really opened my eyes to what the club, like what it is really about, you know, and that there are all these different segments of the club. Like, again, you know, the scoring and the record books are a big part. Like there are a lot of other parts to the club. Um, so ever since then, you know, I became a member, um, uh, a general member and it wasn't until, I don't know, four years later or something like that. Um, I had met John Gardner in St. Louis and we stayed in contact and, you know, hung out and stuff like that. And, um, I was actually at his house and he's like, Hey, you should, you should run for a board position. And I just kind of, shook my head and I was like, nah, like I'm not interested. And he just kind of kept on me. And, um, the more I thought about it, I was like, you know, I truly do believe in the club and, 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 you know, what the club can do. So I was like, I want to, I want to be a part of that. And I'd like to try to help, you know? Um, so that yeah, running for second VP, I believe was the only, um, uh, position that I would qualify for based on my membership. So I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll give it a shot. Well, and I think, you know, not only, I gotta be careful. I don't want to just say we need more young guys, but more guys who are on the ground in the industry who understand the direction, not only, not only Pope and young is trying to go in, needs to go in, but also the direction that the industry is going in the direction, you know, what's happening in the industry. Um, what do we need to do to not only, um, conform to the industry, but also what's going on in the industry that we make need to make sure and not conform to. Um, and that's why I was so excited when, when, and I honestly, I didn't know who Scott was. I just knew he was one of the founders of, of dialed, but it, it let me know, okay, it's a guy in the industry. Like that's what I was important to me because 
you know, I, I don't want to ever, and I'm not saying that we have, I'm not saying that we are, but I don't want to become disconnected from what's going on in the industry just and stay in our old ways. You know what I mean? So with that being said, you know, what, what would you say your biggest thing that you want to see happen at Pope and Young for Pope and Young? What do you want to see Pope and Young do? Um, you know, like, what are you pushing for with Pope and Young? I think the big, the biggest thing is just, I mean, and I mean, this is very general, but just, I mean, increased membership, you know, so a second VP represent the general membership, which is the majority of our members, you know, within the club. But, um, I mean, ultimately though, is, is increase the membership of like guys, my age and younger. Cause when you look at our membership numbers, that is where we have the biggest, the largest void. And, you know, some of it, it, it's just, it comes down to, you know, those age groups and societal things and whatever, but it's, it's, that's really where we need to see an increase because I mean, that is the future of the club. Right. Um, so I think, you know, serving on my first term, you know, that a lot of it, it was just, I mean, I've realized there is a lot about the club. I, I don't know. So that was awesome, you know, to get kind of get brought up on the, on the speed on that. So it's, you know, going into, if I'm lucky enough, a, a second term, you know, that would be a big focus is that, you know, that group, that 18 to like 35 group, like, how do we, how do we, how do we reach them? You know, and, um, I consider myself an old guy now because I'm outside of that age group. So, you know, I don't know what those kids are into these days. Cause, uh, you know, I don't, I don't do social media or anything, but, um, you know, I, I think reaching that age group, there's a lot of different avenues now. And so as a club, you know, what are some, some different things that we can do to try to reach that age group, you know? So, um, I think that'd be one area that, you know, going forward, we, I would definitely like to see some work done. So what would you say the biggest thing coming into this? Like you were like, you know, that you didn't, or maybe you had the misconception about Pope and Young and, you know, now that you get in on the board level, you're like, oh man, like I, I had no idea that's was our stance or that was our beliefs or. Um, I, I, I mean, I think the biggest thing was, you know, like I kind of said before was that the club was just the scoring. I mean, that's literally all it was. I, I didn't realize there was like conservation efforts behind it or, you know, like getting youth, you know, the youth programs and, and, and whatnot. So I think that was the biggest thing. Um, and you know, that like, it's kind of the, you know, you bring up in most groups, like you bring up the, you know, the name Pope and Young and nine times out of people, nine times out of 10 people are going to be like, Oh yeah, that's, you know, that's the old rich, rich guys group. And it's like, yes, you know, there are some very successful, wealthy, like members of Pope and Young, but there's also a lot of like blue collar guys like me, you know? So I think that's a stigma that it's kind of starting to fade away, but there's still that mentality. So I think, you know, going forward, trying to say like, yes, we have some old, older school values, but yet, you know, we are open to adopting, you know, and kind of spreading our wings a little bit, but, um, yeah. Well, I think my, my, my favorite conversation to have with guys is guys like yourself that say, I don't care about score um, <laughs> because it's like, uh, okay, that's fine. But 
do you realize that the book in and of itself is one of our biggest conservation efforts? Like, right. You know, these state organizations, they have, they have to use some sort of data. That's our mm-hmm. data, you know? Yeah. And, um, and see, like, that was a big part. I didn't know about, I, I didn't know that the, the, you know, that the, that the scores actually were for something other than bragging rights. Right. But like, even to that point, I mean, like every once in a while, like I'll page through, you know, some of the record books I have. And it's pretty freaking cool. Like, even though a lot of the numbers really don't mean much to me, it's still just like, it's crazy to see like, you know, how many 130 inch like whitetails are entered. Like, it's actually interesting information. But like you said, the the conservation side of the book, like, I did not know that part either. Yeah. I, and, I you tell know, people you know, all the time. Go ahead, sorry. No, no, go ahead, Tim. I, I just, part of Dylan's conversation, I find it interesting when... You get that person at a sportsman show or you get that person um, outside of Hope and Young direct work who go and we're we're talking hunting. They're like, oh, yeah, on my trail camera, I've got these 380 class mule deer. That's a 180. That's a 180. That's a 180. And I don't say yes, they are. No, they're not. I can't judge anything off of a photo very well. But then another conversation will drift and they go, but, you know, I don't really give it. I don't care about the record books or, or score. And, and I, and I just kind of smile and they go, what, I, then why are you calling a 180 class deer? Because that's so, the measuring system. I was, that's our I was measuring just, system. <laughs> I was just gonna, I was just gonna say that. Like, I mean, I, like I say all the time, like, I don't really care about score, but yet we all use scoring as like, a reference, like Pope, Pope and young scoring as a metric, right? Yeah. Like, like when was the last time you know a guy came up to you and saw like yeah I saw a pretty decent eight point? It's always like yeah I saw like a one twenty or one twenty five eight, right? Like it it gets used all the time, so it's hard to say you don't care about scoring when you use it as as a metric. But yeah, I mean the books aren't ever for everybody, but we all use the scoring for yeah. something. I've I've seen sort of like the way people reacted to harvest. You know, and I get caught, I say it every now and then, you know, and people kind of backlashed on that. I'm the one I'm seeing that I kind of find funny, and maybe everybody's a biologist, I don't know. But they when they're talking about maturity of white-tailed deer and how they look and how they judge it, and and I'm like, there is nobody in Oregon saying, Oh, yeah, that's a five and a half year old black tail. They're saying they're referring to a size classification. There's nobody saying that about Roosevelt or or mountain goats. I mean, you can't even hardly tell a, a you know, a, a 10 inch between a nine inch billy on a mountain on a once in a lifetime hunt. It's just funny. Nobody is, nobody is really aging deer out here on the hoof. And I feel like that's sort of a trend that, that is maybe to buck the scoring angle. I don't know. Well, that's what that, so, and I, I love working for Pope and young cause all you guys are Western guys. So I'm glad I have Scott on. Um, Cause I, 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 trust me, dude, I get the fascination of hopping out of your truck and going to chase elk on the mountain. Like that's a blast. However, like exactly what you're referring to, Tim, like the deer that I hunt, I've got five years of history with them. Like I've got them with spots all the way up until when I shoot them. You know what I mean? Like, and that's what I love about like having, like raising these deer, you know, planting food plots for them every year and, and getting trail camera, finding the sheds for the last four years. Like I, that's, that's the part about whitetail hunting that absolutely has me just 
enthralled is because do my kids know this deer? Like if I call mama and say, Hey, I just shot, you know, the big 10, my kids know exactly what deer I just shot. Cause they've seen pictures of them for three years. Like that's what I love about whitetail hunting is you get that, that growth cycle and learning your deer more than just, Oh, that's a giant bull. Let's go shoot him. You know what I mean? I mean, we, we trail cam, we look at photos all the time. We're hunting the same yeah. deer and elk year after year or, or attempting to, obviously we're not food planning on, at least if we're on public land or anything like that. But um, yeah, we still, we still look at them and we still recognize animal from year to year. Right. We, we, perceive, we perceive we do, but uh, it, we're still talking about, it's either a four point or it's a 180 class or something like that. Um, and that's a part of that measuring system um, showing its validity. Um, if you don't want to shoot um, a buck because it's got an abnormality or it's got an issue with it, or you've classified that now as a coal buck because of its antler configuration, then you're referring to a class of animal, a maturity of animal, which the record books, quick little thing for Scott, the record works weren't designed to reward anybody. They're designed to recognize and reward white-tailed deer for mass and symmetry. Anything that wasn't symmetrical or was abnormal was biologically considered to be inferior. Now we reward it having double drop tines and all that trash. That's really cool. But originally it was based around that. And um, we still are saying these things in our hunting networks about um, re re referencing size of antlers or horn or whatever. Um, maybe the exception is when we're looking at bears and cats, we're not really looking at skull size. We might be saying body size, but um, we still refer to it. And so it's kind of funny to, to hear, you know, clearly someone that isn't familiar with Boone and Crockett or Pope and Young and what they do when they don't have a good impression of the record book. It is really an educational thing. Or they had one bad experience. And I think that's one thing that I really like to do when I talk to people on the phone. It's their first buck and they're kind of having a sort of an angle or opinion of Pope and Young that I could tell that there was a bad experience there. And I, tr I try to change that around right away um, and give them whatever I can as far as an education or, or understanding of, of a process. So, so, Scott, you are a measure. I don't know if you've ever had anything um, put in the Pope and Younger Boone and Crockett record books. Um, but you are about to host an event in your home state, and I'm going to have a workshop for new measures there. I'm actually kind of excited because um, you have a network, like you were saying. You're in a state that's a huge, huge whitetail state. I, Wisconsin, Iowa, Indiana, Minnesota, all that up there, it's all so... It, Milwaukee bucks. I mean, there's a team with bucks names up in that, in that area. There's deer hunting is um, still heavily in society there. And I'm excited to see what we can, what we can produce and, and uh, have a great turnout at that event. What's, what was your motivation to want to host a bow hunters bash? Uh, I don't really know. <laughs> um, other than Heather, Heather said, <laughs> I think that's exactly about how it went was 
I said, Hey, we should have one in Wisconsin or Minnesota. And then next thing I know, she's like, you're Hey, <laughs> you're hosting an event in, in Minnesota. And I was like, Oh, okay. Um, but no, I, I think after, uh, you know, as a club, one thing, you know, we started doing was having more regional events and, you know, we had the bashes in Utah, uh, Ogden, Utah. We were all at the one, um, back in December in uh, college station, Texas. And yeah, I mean, with this area being a very rich, you know, whitetail hunting environment, you know, whether it's, you know, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Iowa, I mean, even North Dakota, you know, this area, um, it's kind of a center centrally located. So, I mean, one, you can pull from a lot of different areas where it's really easy to get in and out of. Um, but yeah, I just, I just think this area, we, we could hold a really cool event. Um, and then on top of it dialed, um, which this is actually first time it being put out there. Um, we're going to host a customer appreciation day in conjunction with the bash. Oh, wow. Um, so we'll kind of do our thing during the day and then later in, in the afternoon into evening, um, you know, we'll get into the, the bow hunter bash and have the banquet and, you know, all the raffles and stuff. So the idea is just to try to get as many people into this area as we can. And, you know, u- utilizing both networks, I think we can, you know, we can, we can host a pretty cool event and, and, and a great, you know, part of the country. That's in, uh, Alexandria, correct? Alexandria, Minnesota. Yeah. Yeah. I've been telling everybody St. Cloud. I've been telling everybody St. Cloud. Dang it. I mean, that, yeah, that you've been wrong. It's close. It's close by. I've been wrong. Tomorrow I will get the address first time, the venue for that. Cause I need it. <laughs> first time for everything. Huh, Tim? First time. for. Oh everything. no, no. I've been wrong all day. Let me tell you. I've been told. Uh, Scott, we, I ask one question of everybody that comes on the show. What's one non-traditional hunting item that you always take with you when you're hunting, whether it's whitetail, whether it's elk, whatever you're hunting, what's one non-traditional hunting item that you always have? Can't be like your knife or your binos, you know, something that not everybody else has. Man. Trying to think through like my kits. I don't know. I'm pretty basic. Like I don't bring a lot of stuff. So when you break out your kits, the guys that are hunting with you don't go, what's that? Anything sentimental? No, I never bring anything sentimental just because you never know, you know, what's going to happen. Um, uh, I guess that's not true. Um, I have a rock that, um, um, where I used to live, uh, my neighbor's daughter, uh, painted a heart on this rock with nail polish and I was going on a hunt and, uh, she gave it to me for good luck. Um, so I, I used to carry that, uh, with me. Um, but as far as like an unconventional hiding item, I mean, it's, Everything I carry pretty much has a purpose. <laughs> What's your favorite food item then? How about that? Tree stand snack. What's your tree stand? Oh man, snack? I'm I am a snacker. Um, I am the worst at like packing a lunch for an all day sit. And then eating and then it at I, nine a.m. I'll, I'll have it devour like gone by nine a.m. So then I talk myself yeah. out of getting down early because I don't have any yep. food for the rest of the day. Been there. Um big thing for me is I mean 
it's pretty basic, but like protein bars, um, that will always be in my pack, whether it's whitetail hunting or, or out West, um, usually an apple, um, and then at least two or three sandwiches that are usually, like I said, gone by 9am. So Ooh, I do, that, that is, that is, oh I will say that is, if I can improve any part of my hunting kit, it's, it's food. food. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, like for my day hunts, I pack like I'm going to be gone for a week. Um, <laughs> I, I am not, uh, I am not a happy person when I'm hungry and I can go a really long time without eating if I'm like busy, you know, but once I realize how hungry I am, it's, it's probably gonna be a bad day for anyone that's around me, but, um, he'll punish so you yeah, back at Doritos, bro. I will. And like, I do, like, I do eat like, you know, pretty clean on the daily, but during hunting season, I, if I'm hungry, I don't care what it is. I'll, I'll eat it. Um, but that is one, that is one thing I, I do need to improve on is, uh, not packing so much food, but you know, especially like, like sounds like you need to pack more if it's gone by nine. Yeah. I just, I mean, it's like board eating, you know what I, you know what you mean? (laughs) Like it's just, and uh, well, that's why you get some really tough jerky that takes you a long time to chew. That way you can just chew on some jerky. Yeah. And like it's jerky's the best, like especially here in the Midwest when it gets really freaking cold and then it freezes and then it's like a jerky uh ice cube and you can just sit there and like suck on it and then you get to eat it. So it's actually the best tree stand food because you can't well, just Tim sit looks there. And, disgusted. Like you can't no. just sit there and stuff no. your face, you know. You have to it's like time release. It's like time release food. <laughs> I'm just trying to imagine frozen bacon in my bacon and peanut butter sandwiches and having to suck on a peanut oh, butter dude, sandwich. Frozen bacon, bacon is, I, frozen bacon is the best too. I love bacon. I have yeah. bags of bacon. I don't even put anything the, with it half the time. Listen, Scott, yeah. dude. I know being in Wisconsin, you guys have Casey's, right? Yeah. Casey's Certain breakfast parts. pizza. It you is, get a Casey's breakfast pizza and then you go yeah. hunting, dude. And then like the grease like just solidifies on top and it's just like the best thing ever cold. Yeah. Yeah. And their, their breakfast sandwiches are, are pretty bomb too. But I think that like, I mean, you know, like, especially when it gets late into the rut or like late season and like, I have this, I don't know if you can really call it a theory cause I'm pretty sure it's been proven, but like the colder you are, the more you eat, right? Like you try to oh, eat for sure. keep, yeah. to keep warm. Yeah, so, for sure. Yeah. I mean like Tim bacon, I mean, oh, that's just, that's a good okay. one too. We're gonna talk bacon. You got to try this. You have a you, do you have a souvé? Like a, a yeah, souvé souvé cook, a su- yeah, a cooker. Go yeah. down to the go down to the store. Get that beautiful piece of package of bacon that doesn't have a paper label in it. Put it in there for like two three hours. Take it out on the barbecue. Oh, God. What do you what do you, what do you cook it at one sixty? I put it on one thirty five. Yeah, and then just yeah. finish yeah. it on the grill. Yeah. Oh, that does sound bomb. Oh, I can't believe the flavor. It just blows my mind. Yeah. Mm. So guys, I'm about to go to bed and you guys got me hungry for bacon. <laughs> Dude, I, bacon. I was just I was just thinking that too. I'm like, I'm gonna have Scott, bacon for breakfast. I'm gonna have bacon for breakfast tomorrow now. <laughs> Scott, if you had one hunt left that you could ever do in your life, where would you be packing your three sandwiches and bacon? What hunt would it be? Uh some some sort of uh sheep hunt. Uh, well, I'm sorry. You know, 
doll, doll or stone, like just some, or even a mountain goat. I would, I mean, just something above I, I think, Alpine. Yeah. I mean, just, I, and I think just like the physicality of that type of hunt, like it, that would be my number one for sure. You'd awesome. have to pack more than three sandwiches, bro. Yeah. It's like three, <laughs> three, sa- three, three, three sandwiches, three mountain houses, breakfast pizza. Just bring it all. Yeah. The whole thing. Just bring it Guys, all. thank you so much for listening. Guys, if you have not stumbled upon dialed, which I don't know how you haven't, because again, they come onto the scene hot and heavy, but they are a wonderful supporter of Pope and Young. They do make incredible sites. So definitely go check out dialed. If you're not a member of Pope and Young, I would highly encourage you to go over to pope-young.org and join. But we hope to see you in Alexandria. We hope to see you in, uh, we got one coming up in Ogden. Uh, we'll be back in, in Texas in December. So we've got a lot of bow hunter bashes. So make sure and stay tuned where you can catch us at. And if you're not going to make it to those, our auctions are online. So you can still get some incredible hunts. So make sure and get registered to bid online. But guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Y'all have a fantastic week.